This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Andrew Clyden, and I'm joined today by Deb Fitzgerald, writer and editor for The Pulse. How's it going, Deb? Great, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, welcome back to the podcast. Can't wait to hear what you've got to tell us about today. Talked a little bit last week with Miles about some of the the big school stuff that we've been looking at last week, uh, or two weeks ago at this point now, uh, in terms of what schools are doing as they prepare for the school season. You and Solomon Lindenberg did kind of a deep dive into that question, talked to the different school districts up here to figure that out, and you put together a series of articles for The Pulse, which you can find online, and I definitely recommend everybody do check out online, uh, that kind of go through step-by-step what each of the school districts are planning to do for their reopening. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about that. What were some of the things that you set out to find when you and Solomon dug into this story, and and what did you learn along the way in terms of what these schools are planning to do uh, for reopening during the pandemic? Right, and I think uh, the most important thing to remember is is what a uh, moving target this is. As circumstances change, the school districts have become um, very flexible and are, you know, meeting right up until the week before school to make sure that, you know, they don't need to pivot on certain particular plans that they've already put into place. So what we want to know, you know, first of all, basically, is what schools plan to do. And we did find that out from uh, all five school districts. Each one of them has a slightly different plan. And even since two weeks ago, some of those things have changed. Um, For instance, uh, at Southern Door, they were originally not going to require masks. Um, Of course, then after the governor's order, they're now requiring masks uh, for everyone. So they were going to be recommended, but not required. Um, What we found out about all five of the school districts is they're spending an extraordinary amount of time doing this, um, trying to make sure that they get it right, that kids can return safely, that staff can return safely. Uh, Two of the school districts, uh, the biggest one, Sturgeon Bay and Sevastopol, they have very similar looking plans. The students are um, all expected to return to campus and they do have an option uh, for kids to learn at home as well for parents who don't feel comfortable sending their child to school. Um, Then we have Sevastopol. Sevastopol is doing kind of a, um, a bit of a hybrid they are uh, bringing kids back to school um, really on a, a more of a graduated scale. So that means that not everybody is going to be back all at one time. It's like a phased reopening. Um, and then Washington Island, I guess Washington Island also is like Sturgeon Bay and Sevastopol. All the kids are on you know, campus. And Gibraltar is is waiting to see what uh, what the numbers are in Dora County. And based upon the risk level, uh, will either open or open virtually. So it seems like each one of them has both on-campus and remote options. They, and I want to talk about both of those. But let's start in the classroom. 
how are things going to be different for students in the classroom this year? Well, in the classroom, they are uh, making sure that they can maintain social distances. So that means down to measuring the size of the classrooms. So they know how many students they can fit into each of those classrooms. If a class normally meets in one room, but it's a smaller class, they might move to another room. Um, a bigger class that actually can't fit into one of the classrooms will have to be broken up. Um, some of the things that they're doing to eliminate congregation is, like for instance in Sturgeon Bay, they are eliminating lockers and encouraging kids to bring book bags instead. Um, most of the schools that we spoke with had plans for exiting and entering the school. And um, I believe it was Southern Door, for example, is doing a, you know, kind of like a phased release at the end of the day. So everybody doesn't just run toward the doors. So they're, they're doing, they're, it, it's probably going to look a lot different. Lunch is, is definitely going to look a lot different at most of the schools with, you know, lunches being brought to the classrooms, kids eating in the classroom. Um, if they are eating in the lunchroom like they intended to be doing in Southern Door, then they would uh, not be able to just, you know, pick out their own food. I mean, everything would be served to them. Tables would be spaced out. There would be, of course, plexiglass or some kind of covering for the servers. So everything is going to look very different. It's not going to be the school uh, year that that anybody has has ever experienced before. Right. And, you know, it's interesting as you're talking about this, and I'm trying to imagine how things would be different for me if I was still in school. And you talk about like no lockers and, you know, trying to keep things minimal in that way. It also makes me think about like what a, like a paperless schooling might look like in the future. And it's something that, you know, people have, have talked about and there are certainly classes at the college level that go paperless where they have online syllabus and everything else. Uh, but there seems to be uh, roadblocks when it comes to, to, to most types of, of classrooms. But I feel like those roadblocks, when they get kind of demolished in this way, like when the pandemic really shakes everything up, you can kind of look at stuff and be like, well, what if we did do like a paperless class? What if all of your homework was online? What if all your textbooks were online or, or you could download them onto an iPad or a Kindle or something like that? And then in solving for this pandemic, you're also making broad strokes towards some other challenges too, uh, which I think is interesting. And the, the other side of that would be the remote learning. So tell me about these remote learning opportunities that students will have. Well, uh, students, uh, like I said, parents who uh, don't feel comfortable sending their child to school will be able to, um, you know, have their child Zoom or Google Meet into the classroom. So those models will look a little bit different. I know that it really depends upon enrollment. Uh, schools won't actually know what they plan, you know, what exactly it will look like until they know how many students are actually going to be going into the classroom and how many students are actually going to be learning at home. For instance, if there were a larger number that they're, than they're anticipating that opt for the virtual 
classroom, then maybe they would just have a classroom that is just for those virtual students. The other models have teachers, you know, literally standing in what they call in Gibraltar the green zone, which is where the teacher can be seen by the kids who are at home, but still a part of that particular classroom. So um, there they'll they'll be using either Zoom or Google Meet. So, you know, the kids will be seen and be able to see their classmates and the teacher, even if they are at home. So those will look a little bit different depending upon the enrollment. But the schools that we spoke with, um, you know, well, we spoke with all of them, but Sturgeon Bay, um, Southern Door, Washington Island, they anticipate the majority of the children will be back in the classroom. Interesting. When when you start to think about like at a high school level, it seems like it would be appropriate to have a student be able to zoom into each of their individual classes. But then when you go into the lower grade levels where a student isn't necessarily going between teachers, then it becomes a thing of like, well, do do you just have them in their class all day or do you put all of the remote learners into the same class so that it can be more specialized for remote learning? Uh, and, and I feel like that's probably the question that everybody's asking too, right? Right. How you highlighted with the, the enrollment stuff. And it makes it very difficult to, to actually like think about it. If you're, you know, say you're in the fifth grade and you're going into sixth grade, well, that's a completely new learning environment. You don't know your teachers, you don't know your class classmates, you don't know the homework that's expected of you. The tools that you're using for that homework could be very different. So as one of the superintendents said to me, you know, it's much harder to plan for a virtual opening than an in-class opening because of that. Last, well, earlier this year when they sent all kids home, those kids had at least six months you know, underneath them to understand the routine and the expectations and what they needed to do in order to have a productive school year. Well, when you have a virtual um, school, then the kids don't, they're not there to get introduced to all of those things by people who are dedicated to introduce them to that stuff. So it's a lot more difficult, um, a couple of the superintendents said, to plan for a virtual opening because of that. Right. Right. All of the the different schools have their own articles that you and Solomon put together that kind of go through each of the things that people need to know about the reopening. There's kind of a a, a greater article that ties them all together, and all of that is available at DoorCountyPulse.com, and I definitely recommend everybody check that out because they're pretty thorough in what they have. And like you said, things are bound to change as the conversation changes. Right. Uh, But uh, I, I think that that... I think that those are both full of pretty good information for people right now. Is there anything else from those articles that you think is important to highlight on the podcast? Well, just probably to highlight all of the different components that we do have in there. I mean, it does get into the academics a lot more thoroughly and what is going to be expected of the kids and parents. Um, Transportation, the wellness measures, those are pretty extensive. And they start if the kid is actually taking a school bus. Um, It's all the way uh, down to waiving the fees for students who are driving, high school students who are driving, so that they can encourage more kids, you know, who can to drive or have families uh, drop them off. There is also uh, nutrition and food programs, um, events, athletics and activities, and what they would do for school closure and how they're going to go about ascertaining whether or not they should close a school or a classroom. Um, So all of that is in there. Right. Yeah. It's it's a much bigger issue than just like what happens in the classroom. Exactly. And 
one thing that I, that I feel like I, I've learned from this is that the schools are looking at this as a, a public health thing first and an education thing second because they want people to be safe more than they want people to be in the classroom, right? That That is absolutely correct. I mean, they do really, they are really planning for the safety measures, the wellness measures, understanding that wellness extends to, you know, socialization. Um, isolating children or anybody really is not a, uh, a healthy way to go about life. And so that's what they're balancing is being able to bring kids back where um, research has shown that they learn best when they are in the classroom with other students and a dedicated teacher. So, right. Uh, anything else about schools before we move on to another fun topic? No, but stay tuned because right. we will be covering more of that as we get closer and as the school year opens. Great. So, Deb, you've been with us for a couple of months now, and one of the one of the pieces of news that you latched onto and have been reporting on now for a bit is Potawatomi Tower. Yes. And what a fun one to do because it just <laughs> every week you've got something new to research and to learn about. Right. Uh, so we've we've talked about the the tower situation on the podcast more times than I can count on one hand, I'm sure at this point. Uh, Tell me a little bit about where we're at right now. I think last time you and I spoke about it, the the question was like, do we tear it down and rebuild something new or do we fix it in place? What happens if we fix it? How do we deal with the Americans with Disabilities Act? When does that get triggered? All of this stuff was kind of being questioned. Mm -hmm. But it seemed like the people who were trying to preserve the tower were really gunning for a a preservation method. They wanted to fix it in place, didn't want to change it. Uh, But then the DNR was was against that. And the DNR has kind of doubled down on their stance of tearing the tower down over the last couple of weeks, correct? Correct. And so when I when I picked up the story, all of the reports had been done. There have been three different reports done on this tower. And and bottom line, long story short, it it shows that the tower could be uh, repaired in place. Um, The extent of those repairs is where there is a difference of opinion between the state and the Sturgeon Bay Historical Society Foundation that commissioned its own independent report and which the state hired engineers to look at to ascertain if they really were um, feasible and something that they could do. And that report indicated that it was. So that's where they were. And and then um, local legislators uh, a few weeks ago decided to, um, they looked into the issue, decided to get on board. They are advocating a repair. So that was the last story that I had done. And then last week, the DNR sent a letter to the Sturgeon Bay Historical Society Foundation um, and the legislators letting them know that they still thought that the best thing to do was to make it accessible to all or accessible to none. And so they indicated that they wanted to proceed with the demolition of the tower. They also, however, said that they would work with the Sturgeon Bay Historical Society Foundation, which had filed nomination papers to have it listed on the national and state registers, which doesn't make any sense. Why would you want to list something that you are, um, you know, going to tear down. So that was a little confusing. They also wanted to meet with the Sturgeon Bay Historical Society Foundation and at the site. And that meeting is going to be taking place uh, this Wednesday, this Wednesday morning. 
Meanwhile, um, the Sturgeon Bay Historical Society Foundation put a petition online, ipetitions.com. They're looking for a thousand signatures um, so that they can show that there is public support for this tower. Also, the Door County Legislative Committee took up the issue last week, um, wanting to come up with some kind of a, a statement to support the repair of the tower, and they discussed that and are going to be drafting a resolution that they will have in September, and if they pass that, then it would go to the county board. And then meanwhile, on Tuesday evening, tomorrow evening, uh, the Sturgeon Bay Common Council is going to be considering a statement of support for repair of the tower. So there are all of these things that are you know, furiously working right now in order to show the DNR that there is public support for keeping this historic structure and repairing it in place and doing some kind of measure that would allow um, the ADA accessibility component of it to still work. So people who can't actually climb to the top of the tower um, as they do with historic lighthouses, maybe they could put a video at the bottom that shows what the view is at the top. And this is something that Representative Kitchens and Senator Coles actually uh, suggested to the DNR. Right. Uh, providing some sort of equal alternative. Correct. Um, so let's let's go back a little bit. Uh, I think that it's always interesting to juxtapose this story against Eagle Tower's story because they are clearly going down different paths from each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eagle Tower was demolished. There was uh, an incredible fundraising effort to raise funds to restore it. Uh, in restoring it, of course, it triggers the ADA. And that's why we had those different plans. One of them included uh, an elevator. The the one that ended up moving forward includes this kind of like canopy uh, ramp that mm-hmm. you can go up that will take you through the tree line all the way up to the top. Uh, that's why those designs came up because there had to be an accessibility component in the rebuild. And the question for Potawatomi Tower is at what point would the ADA requirement be triggered? So I guess one thought is if you rebuild it in place or not rebuild it, but if you repair it in place, uh, then that does not trigger the ADA component to it. Uh, so you wouldn't necessarily need to redesign it or anything like that. You could open it back up. People could go up to the top, but it wouldn't be ADA compliant because it wasn't when it was built. Is that still on the table or is that is that a, a matter of confusion as well? Well, the that actually, um, the DNR has stated that they firmly believe that if they make any repairs to the tower at all, they need to make it accessible to all. But that was, um, and and still is to a certain extent, uh, some of the some of the disagreement. The DNR believes that it would be an alteration to even repair the tower in place, the way that uh, the the experts have indicated it could be done. So when there is an alteration, then that does trigger the ADA requirements. However, repairing it in place. For $250,000, which is what the the Sturgeon Bay Historical Society Foundation's expert said could be done, would not be an alteration. And the DNR is, uh, is, is saying that it would be, that more extensive repairs need to be made than what that report shows. So that, to a certain extent, is still 
is still, you know, kind of a, a, a sticking point. However, what they're also doing is taking the template of what happened with Eagle Tower and superimposing that onto Potawatomi Tower. Even the original report that they had that said that the tower had to be torn down was almost word for word verbatim the report that they did on Eagle Tower. So there wasn't even a separate thing done for Potawatomi. So it was almost like we did this for this one. Now we're going to do this one, this for this one, without even any consideration of the uh, different, you know, histories of the two towers. So they tore Eagle Bluff down, I mean, the Eagle Tower down, and, you know, it, it has cost $3.6 million to build its replacement. And that required also funding from uh, the Friends of that park to be able to raise, I think they raised something like $750,000. So what they even said in the letter last week to the legislators and to the organization that's trying to repair the tower is that they believe a precedent has been set with Eagle Tower and they need to apply that template to Potawatomi, which actually doesn't make sense when you're talking about an historical structure which Eagle Bluff, I mean, Eagle Tower was not at the time. Potawatomi is an historic structure, which would have and would trigger different preservation requirements. So they want to take that template, place it over Potawatomi, and that's basically what this group is fighting. Well, and you, you mentioned that the DNR was willing to help seek uh, a historical designation for the tower. Right. So that makes me question whether or not there's an outcome where the tower is preserved as it is, but closed to the public indefinitely. Well, is that a yes. potential? There were a couple of options that the DNR was proposing um, as recently as last week. And one of them is to repair it in place, but then keep it closed to everybody. The second one is to deconstruct it carefully and then sell it for a dollar to this group so they can set it up somewhere else. But that doesn't work for them because, you know, this tower is already owned by all taxpayers. So it doesn't make any sense to sell it to them and have them reconstruct it somewhere else. But now if you do break it down into its uh, individual Lincoln log pieces, uh, then you could assemble it somewhere else. Like if you were to like take your car apart and rebuild it in the kitchen mm -hmm. or something like that. Or uh, what I think probably is the best way to go is you just pop it up on wheels and then you move it across the bridge in Sturgeon <laughs> Bay just like the granary. Right. And maybe we can move both of them mm -hmm. back and forth at the same time. We can do that every year and it will be a big fundraiser for the town. Right. So I think that there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of bright potential for for this in the future if we decide to get creative with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is um, if they were to uh, repair it in place, the ADA requirements being triggered is, like I said, the sticking point. Right. They don't agree on that. Right. Uh, and, and I think that that's what we'll we'll see moving forward as this continues to clash in the same way that the granary story unfolded over several years of people butting up against the same types of legal requirements and then finally finding the exact like statute where it would now now yeah. we can put it back where it is. Uh, <laughs> so so we'll see as the story unfolds. Is yes, there anything else about Potawatomi that people should know before we wrap no, up? No, but I'm sure it'll be different next week. Right. So. <laughs> well, Deb, thank you so much for chatting with me this week, uh, and I can't wait to hear from you again soon. Okay. Thanks, Andrew.
Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com shop where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.